were 250 miles offshore of Cook Strait. This is a tropical cyclone um, reformed basically over the fleet. The forecast was sea state phenomenal, which is waves over 14 metres average. Uh, we had uh, 70 plus knots. You know, we always kind of aim to get three to four 45 minute sleeps a day um, because we have two hours of off watch, but in that time you've also got to do the skids to look after the weather, cook, run the engine. So you're really down to 45 minutes or so of actual rest per four hour period. A 23.8 metre wave is the same size as a seven-storey building. So the, so the waves of the Southern Ocean, are, you know, they're, they're poorly understood. And, and this work that we're doing in the Southern Ocean is very much about improving forecasts and improving our understanding of the waves to, you know, as I say, improve the safety of, of Royal New Zealand Navy sailors at sea. Welcome along to episode 17 of Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown and today we chat to Sally Garrett, who's best known for her exploits in short-handed sailing. She's the only woman to have competed in two round New Zealand two-handed races and she's also sailed in three round North Island races. On top of that, she's the reigning New Zealand women's keelboat national champion, been race director for the Auckland to Fiji race and was the leading female helm at the last Flying 15 World Championships. But Sally also works as an environmental scientist with the Defence Technology Agency and studies waves and weather in the Southern Ocean to better understand the environment down there to make it safer, not only for the New Zealand Navy, but for all those who venture down there for various reasons. Sally talks about her experiences in shorthanded sailing, both good and bad, the rough weather, the sleep deprivation, the mental game, and the knowledge that she needs to be able to know how to sail the boat by herself in difficult circumstances if something ever happens to her crewmate. But she also talks about the rewards of the sport and how to get more women involved. Sally also details her work as an environmental scientist, talks about whopping 23.8 metre waves, and her involvement with modelling for the New Zealand sailors at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And she also talks about her other sailing in keelboats and dinghies. We cover a lot of territory in this podcast, and Sally provides a fascinating account of her sailing experiences and the shorthanded sailing scene. And like all guests on Broadreach Radio, she also tells us about her worst wipeout ever. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did putting it together. Sally Garrett, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me along. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, uh, living in Auckland, how are you coping with lockdown version two? Oh, pretty well, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, in level, in level four, we were fortunate enough to have um, uh, laser radial sailor Sarah Winther and her cat living with us. Um, and so now there's just the two of us, so the house seems massive. Do you feel like you're better equipped, I guess, than most to cope, given that you're a shorthanded sailor who spends 
you know, extended periods of time with only one other person? Yeah, absolutely. You know, anybody who goes goes cruising with their, their partner or, um, you know, goes away in the boat or races shorthanded knows that you, you have to get your arguments over and done with um, because you've got to continue living with the person. So we definitely, uh, my fiancé, Neil, who's all my, also my Flying 15 crew, we definitely have some pretty good strategies um, for coping. Uh, and, and a lot of those came out when we were getting ready for the 2012 New Zealand race. Awesome. What had sort of your main objective, your main sailing objective been for 2020? Well, my plan this year was um, was to qualify for the Flying 15 Worlds, which were going to be held in Perth in February. Um, so we, just the weekend before lockdown, uh, Neil and I qualified to go to the Worlds and I'd really put the rest of my sailing on hold to get ready for those world championships. Um, and they've been delayed till 2022. So next March, I have to go through the whole thing of qualifying again. Ouch. Okay. Mm. So I guess it's a wait and see, a, you know, a approach at the moment, see what the landscape looks like for the rest of the year and see what you might get into. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really fortunate to um, do quite a bit of sailing with with my girlfriends, and um, we own a share in an MRX, and um, they're all really really good at making the best out of a bad situation. So we've put together a calendar of um, events over the next kind of twelve months. There's ten of them, and we figure that at least one of those regattas we won't be in lockdown and we'll be able to go sailing. That would be good. Hey, so now last year was a pretty big one for you. You competed in your second round New Zealand two-handed race with Rob Croft on Capellia. And you also won your first New Zealand Women's Keelboat Championships as a skipper. Now, I'm keen to talk to you about the Keelboat title a little bit later, but just wanted to kick things off today by looking at your experiences in short-handed sailing. Um, so what's it like to be one of only two women to have completed the two-handed race around New Zealand and the only one to have done it twice? Well, I think when I think about the race or getting to do the race, especially the second time, I just am I'm just really grateful that I got the opportunity because um, the New Zealand race is, you know, it's really long. It's four weeks of sailing um, and it's an amateur race. And so... Not only do you have to have somebody to sail with and you have to have a boat that's capable of going, but you also have to have a great employer that's going to give you four to six weeks off work. I had six weeks in case um, we dismasted in the South Island. You've got to have the money to do it. You've got to have a body that's up to doing it. And you've got to get all those things together. And, you know, in 2012, when I first went, I thought I was pretty lucky. But to get the opportunity to do it a second time um, was pretty special. Do you feel a bit cheated that you take all your annual leave in one go? Uh, well, I was very fortunate to actually be able to take leave without pay because the reality is while you've got that six weeks you need for the race, you probably need uh, two to three weeks beforehand to get ready in terms of doing the longer races like White Island or the Three Kings or whatever else is on um, and also just the administration and getting your boat through safety checks before the start. Why do you think it is that more women haven't taken part? I, I think, you know, the reality, and I think about my own opportunity to perhaps pursue going a third time, I think the reason that women haven't um, necessarily got to do this is 
because you know people sail with their mates if you're a boat owner you want to sail with your your best mate and um unfortunately well fortunately or you know a lot of boat owners are male and so they take their their best male friend with them um and I think that's kind of what's making it hard and I look at when I look about look at to doing it the race again I know that the reality is for me that I would probably have to become a boat owner to be able to do it and I think the other thing is while we're getting a real uptake in women doing the sands triple series over the winter um a lot of them are still sailing in uh, smaller boats, which aren't capable of doing a race like the Round New Zealand race. So it's getting the right combination or getting the right person to sail with um, in the right sort of boat that makes it really difficult for women to get into it. What about for someone who is contemplating uh, joining the race? What would you say to them? What are the sorts of things that they might need to think about or do to get ready for it? I think the the biggest thing that Rob and I talked about a lot before both of these races, and even the North Island, I mean, the North Island race is, is a pretty big race too, is the reality is that at some stage you could end up on your own, um, whether your crew member gets injured really badly and they're downstairs, um, and you're going to have to be on your own looking after the boat. So you've got to be really confident that you can do everything, that you can make the single side band radar, uh, sorry, radio work again if you've broken your mast, or you can um, get the diesel going again, or all of those things. You've got to be really willing to accept that you could be the only person who's capable of sailing the boat. And I think we spent a lot of time making sure both of our skills were up to that. So it's not really a woman thing, you know, for instance, for Rob, he spent a lot of time understanding how to use the sat phone and the computer and the navigation equipment, which had really been my domain. So it's just about getting a lot of skills and a lot of confidence over a variety of different um, disciplines on the boat which is quite different to crude racing where, you know, if something happens, there'll be two or three of you who can continue to sail the boat and look after it. So I guess that's where those kind of things like the Sands Triple Series comes in handy, isn't it? Sort of a breeding ground for the bigger races later on. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I think I've done uh, eight or nine of those Sands Series. And I actually um, did my first one in the 90s with um, a friend of mine, Christine Weston, um, and when it was with these massive races and people would finish on Mondays and things like that. And it's much more accessible these days. And it's a really good first step before you start doing the longer races, um, like the Akarana series to White Island or um, their 350 and things like that, where you can start sailing at night more and getting into a watch system. What do you think the impact will be of, say, the inclusion of a mixed, uh, the two-handed offshore keel boat event that's um, been included for the 2024 Paris Olympics? Well, I was really hopeful that uh, the inclusion of the two-handed offshore class would mean that we'd see the rise of um, a one-design two-handed fleet here in New Zealand. Um, it's something that I'm really would be interested in being involved in, um, not necessarily for the Olympics, but just the opportunity to race two-handed offshore with all the boats being the same rather than racing in the handicap system. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that I see more uh, uh, women getting into this. And, you know, with Jo Ale has bought her Pied Piper and, and this is her second year campaigning. And, and maybe that wouldn't have been something that she would have done um, if it hadn't been for the 
the event coming into the Olympics. So when you say not necessarily involved in the Olympics, how else, um, you know, could you be involved? You know, the, a, a squad or is it a mentoring? What other role could you um, take up in this? Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I just think that with, especially if there's a, a class that's actually going to establish itself here in New Zealand, you need to get um, a lot of, you need boats to race against and having people who will buy a boat and go come out and race against you is such an important thing to have. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where I really see that I could participate and contribute to somebody like Joe going to the Olympics is um, to be a reliable um, sailor that can come out for them to sail against. Why don't you think um, the Olympics is for you? Oh, I don't know, maybe I'm too old, but though I say people in their 50s are having a go, so I'm not quite 50 yet. Um, I just suppose it hasn't really been something that I've seriously considered yet. Yet. Good good word, yet. that one. Yeah. <laughs> just want to take you back a little bit. So, you know, how did you get into shorthanded sailing? So, as I said, I um, competed in the two-handed in the 90s, and um, just after I left the youth scheme, I was fortunate fortunate enough to do a little bit of two-handed sailing with a friend of mine, Christine Weston, in her young 88. And then I moved away from it for a long time. But um, in 2009, I did the Flying 15 Worlds with my um, fiancé, Neil. He was new to sailing, and it, and it was pretty hard <laughs> um, for soft skills reasons, I suppose. And at the end of that campaign, I remember sailing in from the course in Melbourne, and I said to Neil, you know, I want to take a break from this. I want to go around the North Island. And it had been, I, I suppose for me, you know, my mum had been involved um, in running the North Island when I was a little kid. And um, I remember being at the Devonport Yacht Club um, and the big, they didn't have sat trackers or anything in those days. They used to have models of the boats and they'd move them around this big map on the floor. And I just really felt it was something that if you wanted to be a, a New Zealand sailor, you had to go around the North Island, and and that's where I kind of got back into it. What's the main attraction, do you think? I think for me, it's really that I get to use some of this, some of my work skills as well. You know, I I'm an environmental scientist and a meteorologist by trade, and um, I can actually leverage that into something useful. Um, you know, for longer offshore races. Um, I think it's also the fact that compared to fully crewed sailing, you've got to really, as I said before, be good at everything or at least to be able to have a go at it. There's no kind of fixed roles. You're not stuck driving or trimming or, or sitting on the side. There's just so much to do. You're always busy. What about the mental game? How much of it is, a, is it a mental game? Oh, it's hugely mental. Um and, you know, knowing when to push the boat really hard and um, and knowing when to back off is really important. I mean, the human resource uh, that we have with two people is quite limited. And so when you think about the, especially the really long legs on the round New Zealand race, so there's a the second leg is a, nearly 1,100 nautical miles, so it's kind of up to 10 days. Um, you've really got to th- balance between pushing the boat hard and being able to last the distance and so that's something that I, I don't think by any means that I've mastered but I hope over this period of 10 years I've got a little bit better at it. Mm. One of your um, crewmates from the keelboat 
nationals, um, Sarah L said that you're one of the toughest people she knows. Do you consider yourself pretty tough? I don't know. I think, you know, Sarah sees me racing in the harbour and um, racing in the harbour on an MRX for me um, has a different set of risks compared to racing a boat offshore um, in the middle of the night. I think um, I think all of us, I mean, can be tough. I mean, Sarah L is pretty tough. She's had two kids. That's a pretty tough thing to do. Um, but, you know, perhaps she sees me in that light because of the times we sail together, I'm in a leadership role and I have to portray myself in that way. What would Rob say about you? Oh, I think um, he says I talk too much. And um, I think, you know, my relationship with Rob is quite interesting because um, when you sail together two-handed for a long period of time, each of you has to be a leader and has to be tough at different times and even tough about the same things, you know, whether it be pushing the boat or, um, or, or backing off, you both have to, at, at some stage, stand up and be tough about things. There have been a couple of uh, injuries, I guess, you know, physical toll, and which we'll talk about soon. But have there been times, I guess, when either you or Rob have been sort of close to breaking mentally? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I mean, I think, you know, it's pretty common amongst the two-handed fleet. And when we came into this race, I didn't, or oh, came into sailing together in 2009. Um, Rob and I didn't really know each other that very, very well. In fact, one of the first races I did with him in 2009 was a White Island race, and he was very sick with some sort of lung infection. And I thought I was going to have to take him to Tauranga to go to hospital. And I didn't even know who he lived with. You know, so we've not really um, come from a close friendship. But one of our goals the whole time has been to remain friends. And there's been definitely some ups and downs. <laughs> but, you know, I think we both, um, we both kind of signed into that deal that we were going to remain friends. And I think that's given us the latitude to be able to cope with people being really close to breaking down. But primarily, it's just because of severe sleep deprivation and physical tiredness that people get to that point. Well, but we found that we got to that point. How do you deal with those sort of onboard disagreements then? You know, how do you settle those? Uh, well, this is something that we've worked on through, uh, you know, 10 years. Um, for the 2012 race, we were fortunate enough to use the services of a psychologist to help us out um, just with... Uh, solving our differences um, it makes it sound really bad I think um, you know one of the things I say about Rob and I's sailing campaign is we're very very different people and that has been a huge advantage to us because we have different networks different skills different ways of thinking so that diversity is really healthy and, it, and it's probably been the reason that we've sailed together for so long but it's also, um, you know, of course, it's a source of conflict and um, coming up with quick ways to get past um, or communicate what people are thinking and to get past that decision making has been really important to us. But the thing we um, put in for the last race, for the last New Zealand race, um, was at my work, we have people who do um, humans, human performance testing and they look a lot at uh, driver fatigue. So for for instance, the army driving long distances. And we came up with a scale um, of how tired you were and what the action was going to be. So 
you know, if, if somebody was um, feeling really good, then we carry on as usual. But if somebody was, um, you know, had slurred speech, was having trouble sleeping in their off watch, um, was having micro sleeps when they were driving, then we would, for instance, make sure that we um, did not, I, I would not wake Rob if it, he was struggling uh, in his off watch, that we would change down our sails, we would take our extras off. And these were all pre-decided before we left the dock. And that made it a lot easier um, to make decisions very quickly and to uh, decrease the amount of conflict. How much sleep do you realistically get? You know, let's say take that second leg that you're talking about with 10 days, uh, up to 10 days sailing. How much are you actually sleeping? Um, It depends how rough it is. If it's really rough, you know, you just can't even really sleep downstairs very well. And, I, you know, we always kind of aim to get three to four 45-minute sleeps a day um, because we have two hours of off-watch, but in that time you've also got to do the skids. Um, you've got to look after the weather, cook, you know, do the main, make sure the engine's going to continue to run, run the engine. So you're really down to 45 minutes or so of actual rest per, per four-hour period. And just making sure that you get three or four of those that you really do focus on resting is quite important. You make it sound so appealing. Yeah, well, there's good days, you know, there's good days where you get, where, you know, Rob's nice and I get a three-hour sleep in the morning or something. <laughs> do you cope well with sleep deprivation? Oh, I don't think anybody really does. Um, yeah, I think everybody struggles. Uh yeah, I don't think I do, <laughs> but I must, I must do it right because I've made it round. <laughs> Let's talk about then the, the physical toll um, because, you know, what's kind of the hardest thing about it? Um, well, early on, the, so I've also, you know, as well as the two New Zealand races, I've done three North Island races as well. And um, I used to suffer a lot from the cold, just being really, really cold and it was really draining. Um, and I think that's probably the hardest thing has been really cold. And then, you know, as we uh, as, you know, hurry up and panic. So then you're doing some massive manoeuvre of moving, a, moving the sail stack, you know, moving the 12 sails every time you, every time you tack. And so you're going from this being freezing cold to working really hard. And I think that's the hardest thing I find physically. What about some of those injuries? Because you partially tore, what was it, a bicep tendon off the bone in last year's round New Zealand race? Or what happened there? Yeah, I did. So we um, came around Pusica Point, which is the southwest corner of the South Island. Um, we'd been sailing and not very much wind for four or five days on the Fiordland coast. And we got into a westerly there. So the westerly just whistles through between Stewart Island and the South Island. And we were kind of in. 40 to 50 knots, um, double reef main, no headsail in the middle of the night. And we're pretty tired. I think it was day seven of the leg. And um, one of the things you need to do is you need to call in by VHF radio to the finish to say you're coming. So it's about a coastal classic in length from Pusica Point to the finish at Stewart Island. Um, So we're trying to call in. And what we didn't realise is that our VHF radio was leaking RF energy so when we um, transmitted it would put it would um, leak this RF out into all of our boat instruments and so 
what happened was uh, the uh, uh, Rob transmitted. We were under pilot. The pilot locked up, and we Chinese jibed. And uh, luckily, nothing happened then. It was like, oh, that's good. We survived that and continued on. And we were using the pilot because when you get really tired, um, the pilot's a little bit more brave than I am um, running the boat downwind. But when when we did that, when we um, transmitted on the VHF with the pilot going, we didn't realize that we'd blanked all the memory, all of the settings uh, for the pilot. So you set up your pilot um, in for different conditions. So if you're if you're uh, reaching, you'll allow the pilot to um, let the boat move, uh, change heading a lot and not steer the boat too much to keep it going fast. But when you're going downwind, you want it to keep a really um, be really tight on its heading. So we'd blanked all those settings. And so I put the boat back on pilot. It's blowing 50 knots. We're in the Fovo Strait. And it didn't have the right settings for running downwind. And it started yawing. Um, and I went to turn the pilot off or to make it head up. So we weren't going to jibe. And it Chinese jibed again. And um, the main sheet came across and smashed my arm into the, the companionway. And I thought I'd broken it, to be fair. And I laid in the bottom of the combat feeling sorry for myself. Um, yes, yeah, so that was a bit of a, a dumb move, I think. Was it lucky then that you were sort of close to the finish of that leg and you could potentially get it assessed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but and, um, you know the the medical services on Stewart Island aren't massive, but we did have, of course, um, a number of uh, people involved in the race that were able to assess it. It it didn't really start playing up again until I started racing again from Stewart Island up to Napier. Um, but it kind of got to a stage where I, I had to tie it to my body so I could sleep because it just didn't like hanging down. <laughs> Was this a way for you to get out of stacking sails as well? Oh, no, no, you never get out of that. <laughs> what about then the time in 2012 when you cracked your skull? Oh, yeah, in the 14 North Island race, I think there's a bit of an epidemic of black eyes and, and um, cracked skulls in that race because when we got to Auckland, it happened on the Napier to Auckland race, I fell over and, and put a winch um, into my face during reefing but um when I got to Auckland I was by no means the worst black eye uh Tony Wells off the blink had one and then poor old Christian Arns he had one after his toolbox dislodged itself and fired itself into his eye while he was sleeping so I think it's a bit of an occupational risk is that was that the worst injury or is, is it another one that you can tell us about uh, not to me. Rob's had a couple. He um, put a, a, a jib track uh, through his eyelid, and um, I had to sort that out on a Coastal Classic. So, yeah, lots of things happen. Wowzers. So, is it, was it easier for you second time for the, the round uh, New Zealand? You know, sort of knowing what lay ahead for you and knowing what was in store? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first time... Um, both Rob and I were quite cautious about the race. Um, we There hadn't been a race since 1990, and, and that race had been incredibly difficult. They'd had a really strong winds on the coast of Fiordland, and we were quite concerned um, about our, sa well, our safety and whether the boat would actually hold up. So the second time, you know, a lot of those fears uh, had gone away. We kind of knew what it was going to be like. And, um, and in fact, the 2019 race was far nicer in terms of weather than the 2012 race.
but you do go to places and you mentioned Pew's a good point before you know that that place has what was it gale warnings 300 days a year you know what's kind of the roughest weather that you've encountered so definitely the roughest weather that I've encountered um, racing on the Capelia has very much been the the March 1st storm um, in 2012 where we were 250 miles offshore of Cook Strait um, and this is a tropical cyclone um, reformed basically over the fleet in that race and we kind of had um, the forecast was sea state phenomenal which is waves over 14 meters average Uh, we had uh, 70 plus knots and we made the decision along with a number of other boats uh, Denady, John Henry um, and Chris Skinner on the Truxton to go into Golden Bay and when we got to Golden Bay and we were tied up in the marina, it snowed and um, blew 60 or 70 knots in the marina. So that, that's probably been the worst weather that I've um, had to endure out there. So are there points then when you're actually scared, scared for your own safety? I, I mean, definitely there there are. But I think, you know, one of the things that I'm fortunate, and I think, you know, Rob has actually said that I do okay at, as I do you know, do well when it's windy. I suppose it's just you realise you have to step up at that time. Um, and so I suppose there's no there's no benefit of being scared. It's the benefit is to, to do your job and think about how you're going to get through this. And I guess you probably understand um, more about the weather than and, and waves and tides than, than most, which is probably a good point um, to sort of t- look at your day job because uh, as you mentioned you're an environmental scientist at the defense what is it defense technology agency at the Devonport naval base so can you sort of unravel there what does that entail yeah so I'm a research scientist um, at the defense technology agency and so what we do is that we're part of the New Zealand defense force and my job is primarily about increasing the safety and efficiency mainly of our sailors at sea. So it's about um, coming up with solutions to ensure that Navy sailors, when they go away, especially to the Southern Ocean and Ross Sea, that they have um, the best knowledge of the environment to survive and to be able to do their job effectively. So it's quite an interesting interesting role, and I suppose you know that's the reason I've been there since I graduated in 2000. So one project you've been involved when, what is it, studying waves in the Southern Ocean? And um, I think your equipment measured one wave, what was it, 23.8 metres, which is the largest ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. Can you kind of sort of put that into layman's terms about how big and powerful that is? Yeah, so a 23.8 metre wave is the same size as a seven-storey building. And... um, so that's the maximum wave, that's the maximum peak to trough that we've measured uh, by the buoy, which is at 53 south. But I think the thing that's really interesting is over the level four lockdown, we've still got a wave buoy there. And um, over that period, the average wave height for a 10 day period never dropped betwi- below 10 metres. So the, so the waves of the Southern Ocean, are, you know, they're, they're poorly understood. And, and this work that we're doing in the Southern Ocean is very much um, 
about improving forecasts and improving our understanding of the waves to, you know, as I say, improve the safety of, of Royal New Zealand Navy sailors at sea. But in a way, this work is also with New Zealand Met Service. So it's improving the safety of all sailors or all people, whether they're fishing or, or racing or whatever they're doing in the Southern Ocean. We've been working really hard to try and improve our ability to forecast these really large waves. So have you been down there, um, you know, that far south? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2018, um, I did a six-week cruise with the Navy to Auckland, to Auckland Islands and also to Campbell Island in the Antipodes, um, and the and that was to put in our second wave buoy. Um, and it's a really big program that we're doing, and so trips to the uh, subantarctic especially are routine for us at the moment. So knowing about all of this, does that sort of motivate you to want to go and sail the Southern Ocean or it puts you off? I don't really know. I mean, it's um, it's hard to say. I mean, I haven't done anything like an ocean race. I've watched the TV, of course. But, you know, when we were at Campbell Island, uh, we were there for a period of about 10 days and we're there on an Otago-class OPV, so um, ocean patrol vessel that we send down to Antarctica, 85 metres long, you know, unlimited hot water. And we'd have two anchors out, and it would blow 60 or 70 knots, and it would blow, uh, the wind direction would change so much that in the end the navigator would call us all back to the ship, and the ship would go offshore into the ocean because we couldn't stop the ship dragging. And I, I, I definitely think um, I'd really think about it before I went cruising down there. You know, I had these like ideas and of going cruising, high latitude cruising, and it really is quite tough. I think racing down there would be probably better than cruising. Mm. Takes a special person, all right? That's for sure. Um, so you also involved, what was it, the 2008 Beijing Olympics um, with the New Zealand team working on what tidal modelling. Um, you know, how did that come about? Yeah, so when the um, sailors went to Beijing or to Shindao, which was the sailing venue, one of the things that wasn't uh, really readily available was information on the tides. Um, and I had been sailing 470s not very well um, in the previous Olympic cycle. And Leslie Egnott uh, got hold of me to see if I could help out with this. Because instead of, you know, looking up the tide tide charts like you might do for Weymouth or, or one of the other venues, there was nothing available. And um, so I got became involved to help out along with a New Zealand company um, at that stage called MidOcean from New Plymouth and uh, Raglan are their two offices and we developed a title model um, for the sailing venue and um, then I remember just before the Olympics uh, Dan Slater I think it said to me he, he said to me you know your model's no good Sally and I was like oh no that's pretty bad and I asked him more questions and the, the Chinese had actually built a massive island in the middle of the sailing venue which they were going to use for the grandstand so uh, which of course I hadn't factored in and so I was fortunate enough um, to go up with Mark Orams for a period of time just before the, the Olympics to uh, tidy up or to um, work out how this island was affecting, uh, especially the middle course. 
has all of this sort of study of waves and tides, you know, has it helped you when you're sailing? I'm not really sure, actually. I think um, it's really good to know. And I think in offshore circumstances, especially when I'm sailing with a crew and I, I have the opportunity to indulge in navigating, it's pretty good. But I think, you know, for my around uh, the boys sailing and, and things like my Flying 15 or the Women's Keelboat National sort of stuff at Northern Leading, I think it can just be a bit more confusing. I, I try and to kind of step away and um, have summaries of that information. You can get kind of overloaded, I think, and then not focus on the on the breeze and, and um, positioning with other boats because you're so focused on all this, all this data that you know about. Mm, yeah, no, you're right. Sometimes it confused the the picture. Um, you you just mentioned the women's keelboat nationals. What you did it with a handful of women you'd been sailing with what twenty years earlier at the same event. Um, what is it? Did you call it putting the band back together? You know, how satisfying was that? Uh, it was hugely satisfying, and I think um. You know, one of the ladies, uh, Christine Weston, who I actually own a share of an MRX with, her and I did our first Women's Keelboat Nationals uh, with Kylie Hogg in 1996 when I first left the youth scheme. So to have sailed with the same people for such a long time is, is, is really neat. And it was um, it was one of the girls, Sarah L, decided that we needed to come back. I hadn't raced MRXs for 11 years. Um, I'd been doing other things. And um, she said, you need to come back. I need to go sailing. And so um, we came back in 2018 and then we're fortunate enough for the next year to be able to win the event. What is that woman's keelboat scene like? Um, because there's a period... And again, it's something you've called the lost years when um, numbers were quite low. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when we called it the lost years, I think it was our lost years, you know, when people were having kids and and doing all sorts of other things. But, um, yeah, there was a period that it was really quite low. And I really, you know, attribute the comeback to the hard work that the MRX Association, MRX Yachting, has been doing. Um, and making the boats available. So the first year that we got back in 2018, there's 11 MRXs, and because we decided to get into it so late, we could not get an MRX to do the premier series, the squadron series, because the, the 11 boats were full. And, um, you know, that fantastic support that MRX Yachting and I have to say the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron have done has really made it accessible again for everybody to be sailing. Is there more that could be done? You know, what else could could improve the numbers? Um, I mean, it's a pretty full house at the moment with the Tuesday night kind of program, which is what everybody likes to do. But, you know, you're starting to see, and I see it with my own crew, them kind of leaking out into other places in yachting. And so, you know, with the Flying 15s, when I started, there was only myself and a couple of other women sailing. Now a third and sometimes a half the fleet is female. Um, and, you know, the same with we're seeing lots of women sailing the young 88s now and, you know, women sailing 12-foot skiffs and all sorts of other things, and I think it's just um, a gradual process, really. Mm. Now, doing the research for you, just so many things crop up. Um, you know, in 2016, you became Commodore of the Royal Lacarana Yacht Club. Uh, what was it? The only, the second woman to ever... Uh, be the the Commodore in the club's 125 year history. What was that experience like for you? 
Um, I have to say it was pretty tough, actually, and I, I see some real parallels, I suppose, to my work. You know, previous to that, I'd been the Vice Commodore for three years, and I took that over in a really funny circumstance because um, Chris Skinner was uh, – we were running this race to the Three Kings, and he had three things on. He was running the race, he was getting married, and then he broke his rudder, and so he had to give up something, and it – it certainly wasn't his wedding, so he gave up running the race to me, um, and he built his rudder and then uh, got driven to his wedding in a van and got married, you know. Um, and so I became involved in that kind of grassroots technical space of organising racing. And then when I was in 2016, I was required to step, step up and become, become Commodore, and it was quite outside my my experience from work you know I'm a technical person I do technical things um, and so that kind of management role and that governance was a huge step up for me. Are you still involved in any government's role governance roles? Uh, no not at the moment I suppose I've been just taking a bit of a break after being Commodore um, and I suppose realistically I've been focusing a little bit more on my own sailing and um, you know especially with coming back into women's keelboat sailing. Mm. You, you mentioned about being that race director. What was it, the Auckland Fiji race? Um, and you also sailed on a couple of Sydney Hobart races. Um, how different is it to go to sea with a fully crewed boat? Well, I think um, for me, I find it good and bad. Um, I do a little bit of fully crewed racing here in Auckland um, and do things like the Coastal Classic with an all-women's crew of 12, which is like a zoo, you know. There's like all these people, what do they do? But it, it's it's good because you don't actually get as tired or I don't find I get as tired. Maybe it's not as mentally tired because there's people to share the, the load with. Um, it's maybe not as um, full-on in terms of crew dynamic because you can always find somebody you can talk to about whatever you know it's not not as um, full-on and one-to-one but I think the the biggest difference to me is especially in a navigating role is that I actually get a chance to navigate that I'm not driving or doing the bow or cooking or whatever else I have to do so it gives me a chance to um, to be a little bit more focused on one role rather than having to be able to do everything all the time. Talk to me about that first Sydney to Hobart race, though, because it, it sounds pretty dramatic. Yeah, it was pretty dramatic. You know, we um, I did some of the Blue Water Point series on the boat, and um, we had a we you know, ripped a main in half during that. We uh, had damage to a water ballast plunger system and nearly sunk. Well, not nearly sunk. Bailed the boat out for ten hours to get back to Sydney before the race. Um, yeah, we were really unfortunate to lose the rig and probably. Um, I don't know, 35 to 40 knots, uh, close to the coast of Tasmania. Um, we went to a place called the Fovo Islands. I didn't even know they existed until we ended up there. Um, yeah, I was on the foredeck when the mast fell down. I was trying to get halyards uh, onto strong points in the in the on the foredeck. Um, I had a, a French-speaking bowman with me who was uh, we were struggling with with language, I suppose, and communicating. It was pretty full on, actually. Was it more comforting having more people around you? You Let's just hypothetically speaking, say that had been in the two-handed round New Zealand. Would that have been more difficult or was just two of you? 
Yeah, I've thought about this quite a bit because Rob was actually driving the boat when it happened. And I, you know, I think things would have been a lot different if there'd been two of us. I think, um, you know, while it would have been, while it's great to have all these people on the boat with you, you know, I think with the two of us, we have a pretty tight, um, we're able to uh, tight kind of focus on the same things. You know, we, I don't know, we can almost communicate without talking these days. And and some of the issues that we had with with six of us on the boat, we may not have had. Um, I also think there would have, uh, you know, having been on a fully crewed boat with an owner who was uh, had some, you know, he wanted to get to to Hobart to um, to to meet up with family and friends was a very different situation to what Rob and I would have been in. Our we our plan is always to stay with the boat and to be able to um, get it to a safe place, and we wouldn't have probably left it um, in in the Fovo Islands. So, so you actually took the boat there and then all got off and, and went on your separate ways from there. How did you get from the Fovo Islands? Uh, so we we were bussed and then um, flown to Hobart. And the boat? Yeah, so the, it was left on a mooring and then picked up a little while later. But um, getting into those islands was quite exciting. We had to go through uh, over a well, kind of along the side of a bar with breaking waves around us. Um, we had a chart, but of course these sandbars move all the time, so we were using Google Earth at times to get in. Um, yeah, it was pretty a pretty different experience. Hmm. We'll talk about using all your skills anyway. Um, but you're not just a keelboat sailor though, are you? Because um, you've mentioned you're flying 15s and also, um, was it women's match racing when it was an Olympic class? There's the women's 470. You know, how close did you get to going to the Olympics in any of those classes? Well, to be really honest, I was a long way away from going to the Olympics. I actually did women's match racing um, before the year 2000. So I was unfortunate enough to be at the women's match racing worlds in 2000 in Tampa when they announced that women's match racing wasn't coming into the Olympics, that they were going to have the yingling instead. I'd been um, match racing since I left the scheme, so for probably about four years uh, both in the States and, and New Zealand and Australia um, with a view to us hoping it was going to get in in 2004 and it didn't. And so I was a bit disillusioned. I'd been sailing um, pretty, f- not full time, but you know, quite a bit leading up to going to the Worlds in 2000 and I came back to New Zealand and I, I just wanted to continue sailing and I didn't know what to do. And, 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 at, and at that stage, the 470 class was quite big in New Zealand. There was 12 or 14 boats sailing and uh, Paul Snow Hansen's um, dad, Derek, sold me his his boat that he'd used for the 96 trials. And it, I'm not really sure it was about going to the Olympics. I think it was more about finding opportunities where I could continue to sail and learn because there really wasn't that many opportunities at that time for women um, in, in dinghy classes. And the Flying 15s, what, you were the first female helm at the last World Championships. You know, it, how do you look on that sort of achievement? Well, flying 15 sailing is something I do with my fiancé, Neil. So um, when I did the 2005 Worlds, he came along and was a helper on the committee boat. And he decided he wanted to take up sailing. And so we bought a boat um, and two years later went to the World Championship in Melbourne. Um, 
in 2009. And it's, I suppose it's a thing we do as a couple. And um, yeah, he was so excited because we actually got onto the first page of results. You know, the, the 15 worlds are quite big. They're like 127 boats. And so to get into the top 60 and get onto the first page was an achievement. But um, it's a hugely social class, but it does have the opportunity to also sail at a really high level. So it's, a, it's just a really good social experience, experience to be part of. Do you find then, you know, it helps your skills to be sailing, you know, a number of different boats and, and classes, or are you just kind of addicted to being out on the water? Yeah, I do think sailing at a lot of different classes is, is quite neat. But I think, you know, my 15 is, is definitely, I thought, leading into doing the two-handed stuff, it was really good because, you know, flying 15s sail in all weather and you have to be, you have to really be be in charge of your flying 15. They're kind of a boat that can get unbalanced and out of control pretty quickly. Um, and I think it's given me a lot of confidence for sailing other boats. But I, I suppose, you know, I've listened to some of the podcasts from the previous people who've um, talked. And, you know, it's just for me, sailing is maybe not so much about these achievements, but it's about the people I get to sail with. And so each of my different sailing adventures has been with um, a different group of really great people. And, and maybe I'm, I am addicted to being on the water, but I'm also just really grateful for the people I get to share that time with. Is there one that stands out more than any other? Probably sailing with Neil. Um, you know, it's, it's, we call it the relationship accelerator um, <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> when you start, when you sail with somebody and you decide to take them to a world championship when they've been sailing for 18 months, um, things can be pretty heated. But it, it's fantastic to see how he's grown and uh, at his sailing and, and the, the real joy it brings him. And, I, you know, the reality is when we started sailing together, when Neil and I started sailing together, I'd, I'd really kind of done my chips with it. I was uh, quite keen to go and do something else, and he got me back into the sport. So I think that's pretty special. Yeah, nice. So, you know, just, just finally, what does the future hold for you? What other sort of goals, ambitions do you have in the sport? Well, I, you know, I never say never. I, I do definitely want to go around the North Island again and um, – and I suppose, you know, if the opportunity happened or I, I I wouldn't mind going around New Zealand again as well. But I think at the moment, the big thing that I'm up to is um, getting some of, especially some young women, um, giving them some opportunities to do some sailing. Uh, so, you know, I'm taking a crew hopefully to Bay Week um, and I've got some young sailors like Bella Boyd out of the Laser Radial, uh, Emma Stenhouse who sells, used to sell FXs. And giving them an opportunity to come to a regatta, to have a proper position on a boat, um, and and just to see to see if they like it, you know. Um, and I think that's the big thing for me for the next kind of few years. Any particular events that still, um, you know, whether it's even something internationally? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we'd hoped to do this year, but um, I think you know we've got to kind of bridge the gap until we're allowed to travel again and so as I said we're doing um, 
we're into do the Open Nationals uh, in October, where we might uh, struggle to get out of the bottom five, but never mind. Um, and then, as I said, we're taking a boat to Bay Week, to the Bay of Ireland Sailing Week, uh, with an all-women's crew, or maybe just sailing with uh, one guy on board. Um, and then after that, we'll just see how the border kind of, whether it opens or not. Mm, it's the billion-dollar question, isn't it? Well, it's been um, really interesting to have this chat, actually. And I, I just um, obviously need to ask you before you go what your worst wipeout ever is, um, whether that's, I don't know, something spectacular, embarrassing or costly. The floor is yours. Yeah, well, I thought about this a bit, you know, and for anybody who's sailed a FAR 38, they're known for wiping out. But I think the worst wipeout I've had is really uh, last year in the Sands 100. Um, a lot of people probably listening did the race. And it was quite windy. And Rob and I had this idea that if we were if we were going to push the boat, we should do it at, around Auckland. So if we broke the mast or anything happened, we'd be able to be rescued. And we felt that we were being a bit soft um, after the New Zealand race. So the, ra- the race started in uh, 30 to 40 knots. And um, we had our, our class kite up, which is a little bit bigger than most people would have. And um, we, were with, we were at the... Uh, the north side of Waiheke, and we jibed. We jibed in 40 knots, which I, I was pretty astounded by, actually. And then we um, got a bit of a twist, and we got that out, and I think I went back to the cockpit. I was quite chuffed. And then we had a gust come through, and we wiped out and broached so badly. We had to take the main down on the boat, um, and it took us probably half an hour to get upright again. But I think what made it, made it the worst wipeout, it was so bad that another competitor rang one of my female sailing crew to see if I was all right and whether I'd called the Coast Guard. So clearly they had seen a lot of our anti-fouling. <laughs> Nothing like a bit of public humiliation, right? Yeah, I thought it was the concern. I thought that somebody actually being concerned about us thought it was pretty bad. Mm. Well, you don't want to have too many of those, that's for sure. Um but hey, look, thank you, Sally. Um, it's been a really interesting uh, 50 minutes or so to sort of look into shorthanded sailing in particular, because it's really a burgeoning uh, part of the sport at the moment with so many people being involved. And it's really um, exciting to see, actually. Um, so, you know, that might have another uh, effect on things like the Round North Island race and Round New Zealand race. I know there are, are limits on how many can do it, but um, it's certainly a part of the sport that um, is 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 growing and, and growing quickly. So thanks for sharing your experiences. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any feedback, then you can email me at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you with the next episode in a fortnight. Take care. <laughs>